Hi again, I'm Jack Lussenberry, and welcome to the latest episode of my podcast. I've been doing journalism in many different forms since Jimmy Carter was in the White House. I've covered everything from a train wreck, the murder trials, to the struggles for freedom in Eastern Europe. I've met a lot of fascinating people and heard a lot of fascinating stories. What I really want to do on this podcast is tell and share interesting stories with you and talk about some fascinating things that maybe you didn't know. By the way, for those of you who've been fans of my daily radio essays for years, they're here too. So please settle in and listen. I hope you've enjoyed today's podcast. And also please follow me on my blog, Lessonberry Inc. That's I-N-K like inkpen.com. Well, throughout history, no war has continued to fascinate Americans like the Civil War. Tens of thousands visit Gettysburg and other key battle sites every year. Hundreds take part in reenactments of the major battles and new books, fiction as well as nonfiction, are constantly being published. We don't normally think of Michigan as having a major role in that war, and when we think of iconic generals, Grant and Lee first come to mind. My guess is that virtually nobody ever thinks about General Alpheus S. Williams. Well, in fact, Michigan played a much bigger role in that war than you might think, and Alpheus Williams is a figure time should not have forgotten. Joining me today is a man I think of as Mr. Michigan History. Jack Dempsey is an attorney who has a second career, not as a boxer, but as an author and guardian of Michigan history. He's the former head of the Michigan Historical Commission, is now executive director of Heritage Michigan, which capacity, among other things, by the way, he's trying to save Ulysses Grant's Detroit home. A few years ago, Jack wrote an excellent book called Michigan and the Civil War. He now has a new one called Michigan Civil War Citizens General Citizen General, I should have said, Alphaeus S. Williams. Jack, thanks for making time for us today. Thank you for inviting me. Well, I'm embarrassed to say I thought I was sort of a Civil War buff. I don't even think I remembered the name Alphaeus S. Williams, and yet he was this fascinating figure. How did you first come up come upon him? When I wrote the first book, as you mentioned, Michigan and the Civil War, um, that's really where I came to know about him. And that book was a result of being a Civil War buff practically my whole life, but not really knowing much about Michigan. So that was one of the many discoveries I made, that we had a number of significant officers. Many people know of George Armstrong Custer, for right. example, but some people other People forget about his Civil War role correct. because of Little Bighorn. Exactly. And um, from the Monroe area, obviously well-known, but uh, generals like Williams should be more well-known because of the amazing careers and lives, lives that they've led and, and how, in fact, we have two statues in Michigan to Civil War generals, equestrian statues, and one is for Custer down in Monroe and the other is Alpheus Williams on Belle Isle in Detroit. So it's a prime location. I don't know that many people know about that. I think I've seen that statue. I saw that statue growing up as a kid without paying any attention to it. Isn't there a convention about equestrian st- statues that if they have one foot up, the the rider was injured in battle, and two, they were killed? I think that's one of those um, myths. That's a myth. Oh. Um, and they aren't really designed that way um, by the sculptor, I'm, I'm sure. Certainly back in the time frame, this statue went up in the 1920s, basically. So, um, But it's an amazing statue. It's very tall. It's right uh, to the east of the Belle Isle Bridge. And with the Grand Prix coming up, um, people can see it who go to see the Grand Prix, and I hope they do, and just take a few minutes to wonder about who was this individual? Why did he merit the, the kind of response in Detroit and in Michigan that resulted in this statue being erected to him? You know, when you 
read about his life, he had a pretty fascinating life and also sort of a tragic life. I mean, he wasn't born in Michigan, right? Correct. He was born in New England in Connecticut, grew up there, um, went to Yale, went to Yale Law School, got a law degree, which is kind of unusual back then. So he, did, he also um, studied for the practice of law um, and went to Europe and uh, was with some very famous friends. But when he came back in 1830-something, uh, middle of the 1830s, he really had a decision to make. What am I going to do with my life? And for what I think are interesting reasons, somewhat speculative, he came to Michigan. Um, this was sort of the Wild West almost back then. Kind of, yeah. The Erie Canal had opened and Michigan was starting to boom. There was kind of this idea that uh, the, the land here wasn't very profitable. So a lot of settlers bypassed Michigan and went through Ohio, Indiana, Illinois. Wasn't there some early study that said Michigan was a hopeless swamp? Correct. There was, again, it. talk yeah. about myths and maybe fake news. Um, right. Someone wrote that. But as it turned out, obviously, we have very fertile soil here. So he came to Detroit. It was a very small town. And he was kind of uh, just a young man who was trying to make his way, uh, went through a succession of public offices, joined the Detroit um, Light Guard Militia, um, actually the Brady Guards, as they were initially called. So he got involved uh, socially, politically. Uh, he was a lawyer. He was ambitious. He was ambitious, and he wanted to be engaged in public service, which I think comes in part from your New England roots, and his family goes way back to the beginning of, of the nation, really. So back to the tragedy, he uh, lost three of his six children before they were 20 years old. He lost his wife after 10 years of marriage. At age 30. And so uh, how is he going to raise these kids? Um, somehow he manages to do it with the aid of, uh, I'll, I'll specify, an Irish housekeeper. Right. Me being Irish, I particularly like that. And then when the Civil War starts, he's the premier citizen general, the premier military figure in Michigan. Interesting, he never went to military school. I mean, so, we, know, we know about political generals, of course. What's the difference between a political general and a citizen general? Um, I'd say a political general is one who's given that commission because of a political reason, a benefit to the appointing authority. So, for example, one of Williams's commanders was Nathaniel Banks. He was a congressman, governor in Massachusetts, and, and so Lincoln wanted to give him a general's commission to try to cement... Uh, that in the army and back home in Massachusetts, that he, we've got one of our own who's fighting on our behalf, on behalf of the Union. But Williams really wasn't uh, picked because of his political throw weight. He actually was a Democrat when the war began. Which was a negative, wasn't it, in a sense? Um, in a sense, yes, because it was the Democratic Party that really was prominent um, in the South and in the North. It espoused this doctrine of popular sovereignty. Let each territory as it becomes a state, pick whether or not slavery is uh, going to be welcomed in that state. And that was part of the dispute that led to the Civil War. So he's, in a sense, politically on the wrong side. But because of his reputation, which is honored on both sides of the political spectrum, and his military um, experience, he was also in the Mexican War, although he didn't fight in, in combat, um, he is picked to organize the Michigan troops right after Fort Sumter and the beginning of the war. And at age 50, 
could have done that for another two or three years until the war was over, but he wasn't content to do that. He wanted to go to the front, and so he managed to um, get recommendations and go down to Washington and personally lobby for himself to get a brigadier general commission, which he was successful in doing. But he spent the entire war, the, the fast, and you might want to say a little bit about what he did at these various battles, but he reminds me of sort of a lot of people in Michigan. He's just out there slogging, doing his job, and uh, it's sort of surprising to me anyway that he was passed over for a promotion to leading a corps, leading an army, but uh, what was that about? I think you've hit on something, that he's got that Midwestern sense that we don't push ourselves, we don't go brag, um, right. we're not... Um, well, I won't mention what particular um, cities or <laughs> right. jurisdictions might do that, but just the humble kind of We're approach. We're hard workers and we do our job. Exactly. And keep our keep our uh, head down and try to just do what's right. And that's what his, his approach was. Why he didn't get more recognition and more um, and any further promotion really is because he did not have a political supporter in Congress or in the administration. And then he had, I guess what you could say in a sense, is bad luck. He had generals that he served under who he served very capably, but either they were a very bad army general like George McClellan, right. or they did a, a terrible um, job of managing a battle like Joseph Hooker. Or in the case of Gettysburg, as you mentioned, he had as his commanding general someone he knew in Detroit before the war, George Gordon Meade. But when Meade came to write his report, his official report on the Battle of Gettysburg, uh, it's amazing to compare the reports that Williams submitted to him um, with the report that Meade ended up um, writing, which didn't even hardly mention Williams. And so that made out Meade to be the hero. Um, well, he got into a Meade did got into a controversy with another general named Daniel Sickles and. Um, but the Williams um, omission or oversight was really something that Williams didn't call attention to, except finally in December of 1863, through the process, he submitted a report to his commanding general, his intermediate general, who then forwarded it to Meade. And as a result, George Gordon Meade, who was known as Old Snapping Turtle, very irascible, uh, kind of an angry individual, um, apologized for omitting Williams and his contributions and those of his corps and his division at Gettysburg, which is very key to the success of the battle, which, of course, many people call the, the high watermark of the Confederacy and the turning point of the war. Williams was there. He should be more well-known because of his contributions there. You know, when we think, by the way, what did he do at Gettysburg? Everyone is familiar, I think, with Pickett's Charge and the first two days of kind of you know, somewhat confused fighting. What was Williams's role and his Michigan men? His key role was in holding the right flank of the Union Army of the Potomac. Um, back in those days, a flank attack where your opponent comes at you from the side is very effective because you're lined up facing a certain direction and the, um, the enemy comes to your right or to your left. You're unable to really defend that. And most times a flank attack... Uh, will succeed. In fact, Stonewall Jackson attacked the Union right at Chancellorsville. Right. Williams at Chancellorsville 
was able to mount a defense and stop the actual route of the Army of the Potomac. So back to Gettysburg, he held down the Union right. Um, Meade, at a certain point on the second day of the battle, called for troops from the right to go to the Union center. And due to miscommunication, there was only a small force of Union soldiers left on the right flank when the Confederates attacked. So Williams comes back to the right flank, to Culp's Hill at the end of the second day and finds the um, fortifications that he and his men have erected are largely held by the Confederates. And so he has to decide on how to take them back, which he launches an attack very early on the third day and successfully takes back the Union right wing. What else happens on the third day? Pickett's charge. And so that gets all of the press and all of the notice what happened on the right flank really was as critical, if not as, as important, as Prickett's charge. So, but that was overlooked in Meade's report, and uh, I think that sets the tone for really what happens to him for the rest of his life, which is a lack of recognition for a very um, substantial contribution to the Union victory at Gettysburg and beyond. You know, sometimes when we think about the Civil War, I think we need to remember that the country was so much smaller in terms of people. It had about a tenth of the population. Michigan had, what, 750,000 when the war started. Correct. So all these folks pretty much knew each other. A lot of them did. Um, And certainly those in the pre-war army knew each other. There were 16,000 total soldiers, I think it was. And because of Detroit being the small community it was, a lot of the individuals who served in the Army who were posted here uh, or were civilian military uh, leaders like Williams, um, they got to know each other and become acquainted. I have to ask, did Williams know Ulysses Grant, who was here around 1850? I believe he did because um, their paths would have crossed and Detroit not being that large a place, both having military interests, they must have met. During the war, and this is another reason why Williams doesn't get noticed, he really doesn't serve under Grant. So he's not able to make his case or make an impression on U.S. Grant, who obviously becomes the the, um, leading general for the Union side. Wasn't there some occasion when Abraham Lincoln came by and they sat in a box and talked for an hour, Williams and Lincoln? After the Battle of Antietam, Lincoln came out to uh, check out what was going on because it was a Union victory. He issued the Preliminary Emancipation Proclamation on September 22nd of 1862, and then the Army hadn't done anything. It was still there. So Lincoln came out at the end of September, the first couple days of October, to check out George McClellan and talk to him and figure out, is he going to move or not? And during that visit, uh, Williams and Lincoln happened to meet, and yes, they did sit on uh, and, and have a very informal discussion. And Williams wrote about that in his letters home. One of the things that's amazing is he wrote um, many, many pieces of correspondence to his daughters and to other family members, which are collected in a book, which form a substantial basis for the book I wrote, because it's contemporaneous. They're right after battles. He writes about Lincoln right after he visits with him. And so they have this freshness and this raw honesty. He's not writing for publication. He's writing for the family. And in fact, he tells them, do not publish my letters or else I'm going to start censoring them and I won't tell you what happened. But now we can read them. They've been published. We can read them. And um, the, the thing that that book, which is called From the Cannon's Mouth, didn't really do is tell a full story of his life. So um, 
one of the ideas I had coming out of the book on, on Antietam in Michigan was to try to look more at Williams. I had a lot of research. Brian Egan and I wrote that book, and we had to leave a lot out. The Michigan story at Antietam is uh, amazing and fulsome. It was the first major Union victory, really, wasn't it? In the East, correct. And and obviously key to issuing the Emancipation Proclamation, which changed the war or alternate not just for the Union, but also on behalf of freedom of all Americans. The thing that's fascinating to me about Williams is that he wasn't off in staff headquarters somewhere in the battle. He was right there. He commanded troops at the front at Gettysburg on the first day. Um, his men are sent to a certain location, and he writes in his letter home to his uh, family that he went right up to the front to make sure he knew what was going on, and he was ready to, to launch an attack on that first day, which could have changed the course of the battle, but he was ordered to fall back. So uh, another amazing thing about him is he wasn't wounded in all four years of war. He served until the end other than a bruise he got on his arm from a spent bullet. So... Bullet traveled so far, it didn't have much full Apparently, loss or, anymore, yeah. or it may, may have ricocheted off of some uh, other um, substances or surfaces. So in one sense, tragic life because of those losses. In another, a very blessed life because he was able to survive four years of war without any significant wounds and with only one 30-day leave. Other than that, he was at the front for virtually the entire war. Now, a lot of Civil War generals, the, the war ended, they were covered with glory, they came back, they launched political careers, they ran for president. Uh, Williams didn't have, he wanted to be a politi- in politics, but he wasn't that, quite that successful. He ran for governor right after the war as a Democrat and lost. I think a lot of that had to do with the popularity or lack thereof of the current president. Andrew Johnson, who was a Democrat. This was also a very Republican state. It was, right after the war, yes, correct. Um, But he did get an appointment as a diplomat down to Central America. When he came back, I think he was looking, searching around for what to do, and he ended up running for Congress and was elected twice from Detroit's first congressional district. uh, Which was pretty much, of course, we didn't have one man, one vote then. Was that pretty much the city of Detroit, or...? Uh, pretty much, and no, it wasn't one man. It was no women voting. And right, true, true. true. <laughs> um, I mean, they didn't have to be districts. Now all have to have the same population. Yeah, no, there weren't those kinds of legal restrictions. Right. Um, part of that story, though, which is interesting, is the election of 1876, which is the one where uh, the Democratic candidate Samuel Tilden got most of the popular vote, right? And the Republican um, Hayes, Rutherford B. Hayes of Ohio had fewer popular votes, but ended up winning because of the Electoral College. Kind of a Gore-Bush kind of thing. Kind of, yeah. Disputed electors. In fact, uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist wrote a book and called this even more of an important election result than Bush v. Gore. Now, most Democrats, in fact, today many historians thought that the Democratic candidate, Samuel Tilden, was cheated out of the election. I would have said screwed out of the election, but this is a podcast. But at any rate... Williams is a Democrat. Did he share in the bitterness? Not exactly. He obviously thought that Tilden should win. There was a process to try to count the uh, electoral votes that were disputed in several states. They set up a commission. They set up a commission which was comprised of Democrats and Republicans and Supreme Court justices. It came down to one person's vote, one Supreme Court justice's vote, 
And that justice voted for Hayes's side in each um, each case. So um, Williams could have taken a bitter. That's a train bringing some of the Union soldiers <laughs> back home, by the way. It could have taken a partisan slant on this, but instead he spoke on the floor of the House and said, we have to get beyond this. I'm right. not in favor of continuing this dispute. We can remedy this at the ballot box. It'll be up to the people to do that, their next opportunity. But for the good of the country, I'm going to put partisan politics, my party allegiance aside, and we're going to go with this and Hayes will be the president. So I think it's another example of how he is the kind of leader that we need very desperately at all times in American history, right. but certainly today. Someone who's really interested in public service and the greater good. You put a country ahead of party. Exactly. And it's that kind of has sort of a sad end. I mean, he, he ended up losing his third bid for Congress because of a minor party candidate, third party candidate. That's correct. And so he's a lame duck congressman in December of 1878. He's still serving. He doesn't just uh, ignore his duties. He goes to Washington for that session. And while he's in the Capitol building, and this is a story similar to that of John Quincy Adams, whose fatal illness took place on the House side of the Capitol, Williams is, is, suffers um, uh, a illness, uh, a physical health issue in the Capitol. Probably something like a stroke. Probably, and dies within a few days. So it's a tragic end in a sense, although if you're a congressman and you're a lame duck and you're serving your country, maybe in one sense, it's um, quite a way to go but out. Unlike other congressmen who lose and just, you know, heck with that, he was going to stay and work at his desk till the very last day. I tried in the book to make that a point that duty for him was the, um, the, the chief overarching principle. I have a duty to serve my community, my, De my Detroit, my state, Michigan, my nation, the United States. And that's really what he was all about, um, upholding his duties and doing that as the best possible um, public servant he could be. So very honorable, admirable individual. Not that he was perfect. He, he did want promotion, and he did angle for it, and he was disgruntled. But he could, he could have resigned. He could have said, I feel I'm being um, ignored and underappreciated. Many generals did resign during the Civil War, but right. he didn't. He stayed to the end. And uh, we didn't talk about this, but he went out west. He served under William Tecumseh Sherman. He was in the campaign to take Atlanta, which was critical to Lincoln's reelection, right. that victory. Then he was in the March to the Sea, the famous uh, March under Sherman, and then through the Carolinas all the way up to almost where Lee surrendered. And in that final, uh, those final days of the war, he was still serving. And how did he get along with Sherman? They got along pretty well, except again, at the end of the war, here Williams has been a corps commander in an acting capacity for many, many days and many times. And with just a few weeks to go in the war, um, Sherman sends Williams back to his division the so-called Red Star Division, right. and promotes a friend of his into the position of Corps Command before it's too late, because the war is going to end and there won't be that opportunity. So mm -hmm. it's almost the final indignity to Williams, the final um, straw almost. But there's this grand review in Washington in late May of 1865. And the first day is when the Eastern Army, the Union Army of the Potomac, 
marches up Pennsylvania Avenue and is saluted and people cheer and their garlands thrown and all that. The second day is when Sherman's bummers and all these Western guys, the, the more rough hewn and, and uh, not perfectly uniformed soldiers come marching up Pennsylvania Avenue. And what's interesting is to read the accounts of how people and soldiers reacted to Williams coming up at the head of his troops. He received plaudits and bouquets and cheers. So in a sense, regardless of what happened with his commanding officers, what happened there that day... The soldiers knew who he was. The soldiers appreciated it. And in the book, I talk about how right after the war's over, uh, there started to be these written accounts of what happened. And invariably, from those who he commanded or those who saw him at the front, they wrote uh, very complimentary accounts of him. And, and uh, really, his nickname was Old Pop, kind of a fatherly or grandfatherly image, which I think shows how <coughs> he endeared himself to the troops he commanded, whether they were officers or, or soldiers in the ranks, privates. What's the one thing we should take away from his life? I mean, why should someone care about this man's life? He's a great example to us of someone who came to Michigan that wasn't born here, um, but made his mark and didn't do it in a self-aggrandizing way. His whole, I think, motive for what he did was service uh, and faith and faith in, in a God that would take care of, of this country and take care of his family and take care of the state. So I think he's a real great example for us, encouraging positive, hopeful, all things that we need today in a situation and in a world which is uh, fraught with all kinds of problems and crises. Jack Dempsey, if we motivated someone to read either of your books on the Civil War, many of your, you've written a number of, of other interesting books, one about uh, the first Michigan capital, uh, which was Detroit. How do, they, how do they get a copy? They can go to uh, jackdempseybooks.com, and uh, I will be happy to Sign a book personally and send it, or they're available online. Uh, we also are selling these books on behalf of the Michigan Civil War Association. Mm. Um, so the purpose of that is to raise funds for a Michigan monument at Antietam. There is no Michigan monument there, unlike at Gettysburg or other battlefields. So part of the reason for writing these books is to try to uh, raise funds so that that important story of what we did at Antietam, which produced... The, the Emancipation Proclamation can be understood and told and commemorated. One last thing before I let you go. You've been, the house in which Ulysses Grant lived when he was in Detroit, stationed Detroit, it's been moved. It's, it's at the old abandoned fairgrounds now. What's going to happen to that house? You need to uh, contact the Michigan History Center uh, for the actual uh, plans, but my understanding is it is to be moved, relocated down into Detroit near Eastern Market, Hopefully this year. No, so that it would be, be a great story if it if it does happen. Is it going to be restored to something like it looked when Grant lived there? Well, that would require funds too, uh, besides the funds that are uh, needed to move it. But obviously, that would be the hope of everyone who's in any way concerned about historic preservation and wants our heritage to be preserved and promoted. One last question: Why should we care? Why should we care about the Civil War? It's 155 years ago. What relevance does it have to today? We're still contending with a lot of the issues, the issues of, uh, of race, of equality. Uh, it's amazing, as we said, that women weren't able to vote until the 1920s in national elections. 
we're still dealing with these issues and dealing with uh, how we as a nation uh, get along, um, how we deal with votes where the popular vote is not recognized in the Electoral College. These are all issues that we continue to face. And I think it's a great story of how we can build a better society, a better nation on the framework of what's gone before us. Unless we understand that, I think we're lost moving forward. You're absolutely right. I think we need to remember sometimes that before the Civil War, they would say, the United States are. And after the Civil War, we're supposedly one country, the grammatical form was the United States is. So yes. We need more is and less are. Jack Dempsey, thanks so much for making time for us today. Your new book's fascinating. I hope a lot of people read it. From the standpoint of history, World War I was a much bigger and far more cataclysmic event than the American Civil War. The United States took part in the First World War for the last year and a half and was indeed the reason the Allies won and Imperial Germany lost. Yet in the United States, World War I is nearly forgotten today. Even many educated people know little beyond the fact that it had something to do with doughboys and trench warfare and poison gas attacks. Though it ended barely a century ago, it seems ancient history. But the Civil War is still very much with us. Hundreds of Americans participate in Civil War battle reenactments every year, and thousands visit battlefields from Gettysburg to Antietam. It was, after all, the only major war fought on our soil since the Revolution, and more Americans died in the Civil War than in all the wars since, even though the country had then only about one-tenth of the population that does now. What often has been overlooked was Michigan's role in the Civil War. We were then a small agricultural state, far from any battlefield. But in fact, we played a far greater role in that war than is commonly known. 23% of the eligible male population of the state fought before the war was over, though it would be equivalent to more than two and a quarter million Michigan men today. Nearly 15,000 of those soldiers died. That would be equivalent to almost 200,000 Michigan military deaths today. When Michigan was first asked to send four regiments, we sent seven. When the first troops arrived in Washington in this month, 158 years ago, President Abraham Lincoln said, thank God for Michigan. However, our state's role in that great and bloody conflict was too long, too little known, and has since been largely forgotten. We had, after all, no generals named Grant or Lee or Hooker or Stewart, but Jack Dempsey, the author and co-author of six books on Michigan history, has been doing his best to give us back the past that we've forgotten. His book, Michigan and the Civil War, taught me a lot I didn't know, and now he's back with a new book about a man who spent his life being underappreciated. The title is Michigan's Civil War Citizens General, Alpheus S. Williams. He was a man who bravely led troops in the battle throughout the war, a commander in the field who was a key part of the victories at Antietam and Gettysburg, but constantly got passed over for promotion in favor of lesser men. But old Pap, as they called him, didn't quit in the huff, didn't whine. He just soldiered on and did his job. He led a largely sad life. His wife died young, as did two of his children, but he has kept on keeping on. Eventually, he did get elected to Congress, where he, as usual, put country above party in crucial moments. When a third-party candidate caused him to lose his re-election bid, he nevertheless resolved to keep on working, largely for veterans' causes, till his term expired. That's when, of course, he had the stroke that would kill him. Jack Dempsey, the executive director of Heritage Michigan, has done history and us the favor of telling his full story for the first time. Old Pap lived in an entirely different world from the one we inhabit. Yet I think he would have fit in with the hardworking, largely blue-collar Michiganders I grew up with. 
I often think of the fact that in late July of 1863, when bloated corpses of men and horses still littered the Gettysburg battlefield, a farm wife outside Detroit gave birth to a baby who would change the world. She named him Henry Ford. We know a lot about him. We ought to know a little more about men like Alpheus Williams, who saved the nation, that would someday buy so many Ford cars. It's great to have you here. Thanks for joining me today on the Zing Media Network. I hope you'll be looking out for other offerings soon. Please, again, check out my blog, westernberryinc.com, and click the button and subscribe. The price is right, it's free. And listen to our next episode soon. Tell your friends and feel free to send me a message on Facebook or via email. This is your cheerful old curmudgeon, Jack Lessonberry. I'm off to change the reel on my acetate tape deck, but I'll be back with another fascinating topic soon.